0: Wish I wasn't so temperamental, I like. wish I could. Temperamental line Temperamental, temperamental You
1: Today, it's Friday, August 13th, 2021. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio. We're in San Francisco, and we are on unceded Rematouche Ohlone land. And for more information, please go to Rematouche.org and that's R-A-M-A-Y-T-U-S-H.org, and there are ways you can contribute. There's a general donation link, as well as the Unican land tax and the Unican land tax is a financial contribution made by residents who live along the San Francisco Peninsula, in San Francisco County, in San Mateo County, and the portion of Santa Clara County northwest from Cupertino. You can make a one time or a recurring contribution. And Unican is the Ramatoush word for village. It is used here to convey our commonality as a community of people who live and work together in the ancestral homeland of the Ramatoush Ohlone peoples. And um, yeah, welcome to the show. I haven't been in for a few weeks, almost a month now, and I originally had a gig planned for today, and uh, last minute it was canceled, so I'm grateful to be here, and uh, we'll be sharing some music, uh, some anti-capitalist news, and other uh, events, upcoming events, teach-ins, and the like, and I miss being here, so I'm grateful to be here. Big thanks to Pam for playing a few previous episodes the last few weeks, and for more information, you can go to weeklyrev.org, I've been compiling uh, information about the last many <laughs> several years of shows. Been doing the show now for eight years. It'll be eight years in December. And uh the website has lists of the episodes and links to the music as well as the interviews with guests and lots more information if you'd like to go back into the archive, I recommend checking that out. So start off with some music, as we always often do, <laughs> often do, most of the time. We do pretty much most of the time. And this is a new album from Amarasu, and you can find it on Bandcamp, and Amarasu is spelled A-H-M-E-R-A-H-S-U. And we'll provide a link on our website, but also wanted to provide the information if you'd like to purchase the album and or download it. It's on Bandcamp as well, and the album's called Hopefully Limitless. The first song was called... Uh, temperamental then no one and then we got it all there's a couple more tracks coming up in the program Whew! we'll get started on uh sharing some news items where to start i guess i usually rant i guess and it's uh yeah, i got yelled at yesterday uh i think that's kind of a common thing i guess to get yelled at um and this was thankfully there were the folks who were <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me take a few deep breaths before i get into this so there are folks who are trying to... Uh, Richie Greenberg's like the main guy who's been trying to... Uh, an out-of-state interest in tech money who have been trying to recall Chase Boudin, who's uh, the DA who believes that we should uh, try to solve the roots of poverty and violence instead of just throwing people into jail, which, of course, it makes sense. And some people who have a lot of money and would rather uh, incarcerate people and criminalize poverty are upset about it. So they've been trying to recall him. And thankfully, the first recall effort did not get enough votes they were short about a little over a thousand votes i think more than that maybe 1500 votes and also apparently there were some people who signed with names like ben dover <laughs> which of course is not uh anyway so they didn't get the votes needed but they're still they're still trying to get him recalled because uh we can't have anything uh nice i know that's a common thing that people say but it's also like you know i mean ideally would like to live in a world without district attorneys. Uh, we'd like to live in a world without prisons and cops and militarization and live in a world where everyone gets what they need. Uh, It goes without saying, and I say the same thing here every fucking week, that uh, (laughs) it's so backwards that we live in this world, Um, and especially in this country where there's so much propaganda. And we'll get into a few articles about that today, just how um, I myself am one of the many people who have been propagandized to, and there's uh, so much unlearning that one has to do and questioning of the information that we are shown and told okay so getting back to my story so there there's still another group called quote-unquote they're called safe and barcadero but i'm like safe for whom yeah um and they're also trying to uh recall chesa still and there's been a lot of money uh also from like out of town money a lot of money that's been thrown in to try to recall him and there was a, a tr- th- twitter thread i read recently and actually i might link to this in our webpage at weeklyrev.org from Broke-ass Stewart um, about how they were paying people from out of state who are unvaccinated to come in and try to gather signatures, paying people $8 a signature, and not really informing the people gathering signatures um, what it, um, what Chase's platform is. So uh, in addition to that, so there's another group, uh, I mean, similar, similar folks, and uh, I was walking down the street, as one does <laughs> if one lives in a city, And uh, they're blocking the sidewalk. This was on Market and Fourth Street yesterday. Was it yesterday? It's already time is so difficult to comprehend at this moment. But yes, it was yesterday morning. And after getting uh, a COVID test, just to know, you know, I'm vaccinated. And also, uh, if you're able to get tested, I think it's important, especially if you're around uh, immunocompromised people and kids and other folks who may not be able either able to get vaccinated and or are at risk. So, you know, it's like just a, just a thing that one can do. And City Health is one place you can do that uh, for free and um, whether or not you have insurance. So I thought I'd recommend doing that if you're able. So anyway, after the COVID test, I'm walking on the street and these people are blocking the sidewalk. This one person, for instance, is blocking the sidewalk with a safe Embarcadero against Chase and sign. And I got so fucking angry because I was like, y'all, the previous day, they had, the other group had not gotten enough signatures. And I was like so fucking angry because it's like, First of all you're blocking the sidewalk second of all you're space putting in your time and your energy to cause more harm anyway this person was not wearing a mask and uh, of course with the delta variant it's contagious and thankfully in the bay area there there are high vaccination rates however there are still folks who are catching COVID, and people you know it's like just we're at this point we're in a mask uh it's the very least you can do i think not that complicated um especially if you're you know out there trying to engage with people and talking to people very closely and so I mentioned a comment. And if you know me personally, uh, I talk more on the radio show than I probably do uh, in person. Uh, I'm non-confrontational. I don't, I don't think I'm confrontational. I don't like to get, I don't try to get in people's faces. I have a lot of feelings and I feel very really upset about a lot of what I see, but I tend to either write it down, talk about it here. I don't like to, uh, it's not natural, I feel like for me to engage with people um, in a really angry way. Um, perhaps at a protest, I will yell and also, but just on a one-on-one, it's, that's difficult for me. So I, I think I maybe said something like, oh, can you please at least wear a mask if we're going to be, you know, out here blocking the sidewalk? And and this person, this woman who was gathering signatures got really angry and started yelling at me and screaming at me and uh, mentioned the quote-unquote uh, the mask media and then started yelling, you know, just saying that she was healthy because she eats honey and some kind of oil, and was just, like, screaming at me. And I think pretty much um, I would hope that the person that she was talking to, who was wearing a mask, um, maybe uh, saw this interaction and was like, maybe I shouldn't be signing this petition if the person asking for it is uh, screaming uh, nonsense. And it's, I have, I do have some compassion for folks who have been propagandized to and lied to. And also at this point, I don't really have much sympathy if you're going out and actively harming other people and also just screaming at people. It's like the behavior. Like, uh, the behavior alone is just, it was also scary. I was like, man, I just got tested. Now I'm gonna, and it was outdoors. So, still, uh, just wanted to share that with uh, the folks who are trying to do the recall. Uh, Just one time I've heard recently is wackadoos. That's, That's kind of it. It's disgusting and sad and it's angry and how like over in the entire world over four million people have died of covid at this point and worldometers is a site that has a lot of statistics that folks can check out and um I, I occasionally i check it out and see what it's up to and it's how can you just be in denial of so much death and so much harm anyway welcome to the show i used to do comedy anyway let's read <laughs> let's read an article this is from jacobin uh my dad sent me this article. Uh, Barack Obama has been one of the worst ex-presidents ever. And I feel like that says a lot because, yikes, you know, it's like war criminals everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, wow, if you're one of the worst ones, that says a lot, right? And I also picked up this book because I can't stop picking up books, even though I'm the, – the pile of books that I'm reading, I sometimes start a new one before I finish another one. And it's from Jay Hoberman. And I love film and film history, and it's called um, – it's called Make My Day, but it's about it's by J. Hoberman and it's about uh, movie making during the Reagan era. And I'm really looking forward to that because I, I mean, I'm so interested in politics um, as well as uh, film. So I was thinking of speaking of uh, bad ex-presidents, uh, that book, I think, will be very informative. And I'm really curious to see for those of us who are raised in the 80s how much pro- we we're propagandized to. okay going to take a breath. This is by Liza Featherstone. That's a great name and that I meant sincerely that sounds like a cool name okay since his retirement from politics barack obama has displayed an astonishing lack of regard for the public good instead of his instead of serving his fellow human beings he has mainly devoted himself to a rigorous program of conspicuous conspicuous excuse me self-celebration all summer millions of americans this year worried about being evicted from their homes cal- catching the delta variant persuading uh, recalcitrant loved ones to get vaccinated or whether a COVID resurgence might keep schools closed in the fall. Former President Barack Obama was apparently loftily unbothered by any of these plebeian concerns. The distinguished memori- uh, memoirist was too busy planning a ginormous 60th birthday party for himself on his vast and vulgar Martha's Vineyard estate, a sprawling 6,892-foot tumor on a beautiful, beautifully... Spare Coastal Landscape, which the Obamas bought in 2019 for $11.75 million. The 475 guests were to include George Clooney and Oprah Winfrey. Even people close to him argued for weeks that as the White House was urging caution, given the recent COVID resurgence, the optics of this shindig were not good. Last week, he appeared for a moment to be conceding to internal Democratic Party pressure by disinviting most of the guests, limiting the celebration to family and close friends. But that soon turned out to be some kind of head fake. While Obama's party might not have caused a deadly outbreak, it was outdoors and the Obamas were requiring guests to be vaccinated, the former president's birthday bash showed, at a minimum, a cavalier insensitivity to the fears and needs of his neighbors, as well as a general indifference to the political fortunes of his fellow Democrats and the sufferings of Americans. But the kerfuffle shouldn't surprise close observers of Obama's ex-presidency, which has been strikingly bereft of public spiritedness. He has distinguished himself as an enemy of labor and a friend of racist cops. NBA players began to go on strike last August after Jacob Blake, a black man, was shot by police seven times in front of his kids in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Amid a national uprising over the shooting and many other acts of racist police brutality, Obama called LeBron James and Players Union leader Chris Paul and urged them to get Peck on the court and finish the playoffs, which they did. Obama was also instrumental in shutting down Bernie Sanders' bid for presidency, a huge setback to the movement for social democracy in the United States. When Sanders was leading in the primaries, Obama worked to organize the other rival candidates to drop out and back Biden, making it impossible for Sanders to win. He then persuaded the Democratic Socialist Senator to drop out of the race. And let's not forget Obama's awful museum in Chicago. The three-memoir author is erecting a garish monument to himself on Jackson Park, which community activists argue it will wreak havoc on cherished green space and a fragile ecosystem, as well as upon the legal scaffolding for the very idea of the public interest. And there's an article that they linked to that they wrote about last year. In addition to his appalling vineyard uh, manse. Obama is also planning to live in an additional ecological monstrosity in Hawaii, owned by close crony Marty Nesbitt, chair of the Obama Foundation board, and developed for the Obamas. ProPublica reported last year that the Obama's planned beach house has a controversial seawall, which protects the estate in storms, but is illegal because such structures disrupt the flow of the ocean and contribute to beach loss throughout the state. Not surprisingly, the sellers paid a substantial sum to the state to grant a loophole, which will keep the seawall in place for another 55 years. In Hawaii, beaches are considered a public responsibility, and extensive laws exist to protect them. But such easements to property owners are unfortunately common. Community members have been protesting the loss of the surrounding beach, demanding that Nesbitt take down the seawall. Instead, the state is allowing he and the Obamas, to expand it. Like most people with way too much money, the Obamas own way too many homes for the health of the planet. In addition to the Hawaii and Vineyard estates, they have a $8.1 million nine-bedroom mansion in the Kalorama Calo- neighborhood of Washington, D.C. All this real estate necessities and an unconscionable amount of flying, sometimes on Richard Branson's private jet, at a time when many middle-class Americans and even corporations are cutting down on air travel because of its climate impact. At this point, the Obama's carbon footprint much, must be catching up to Tom Brady's. We wouldn't expect Obama, a centrist, to become a convert to socialism in the late Middle Age, though as a young person he did attend the Socialist Scholars Conference, But as a liberal, he's been badly deficient, squandering his considerable public platform and influence, providing little leadership on any of the major issues of the day, like income inequality, voter suppression, and climate change. Instead, when he's not actively agitating against social and environmental progress, he's been lounging on the vineyard and on Branson's yacht. With the obvious exception of Trump, who has used his ex-presidency mainly to whine about his personal grievances and fuel far-right conspiracy theories, Obama might be even less public-spirited than many other modern ex-presidents. All of them are war criminals who faithfully served the capitalist class when in power. But Ronald Reagan at least had the decency to retreat from public life into a tasteful and sadly relatable senility. Jimmy Carter built houses for poor people and defended democracy in Venezuela. George H.W. Bush declined to serve on corporate boards and engage in humanitarian activities, raising funds for victims of Hurricane Katrina in the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Uh, granted, Bill Clinton's business and foundation dealings in Haiti were a travesty, uh, and he has, like Obama, amassed. Thank you. Uh, amassed an indecent amount of wealth since leaving office but he has also more than obama spent time on humanitarian causes like disaster relief clinton also did work uh hard on his wife's effort to defeat trump in 2016 george w bush has kept a tactfully low profile becoming an amateur painter and side note it's hard for me to even just read uh, good things about ex-presidents given all the harm they've done but i understand it in the point of this article Presidents would be nothing without the, the trust the public once placed in them by electing them to the presidency in the first place. After the presidency, all their earning power and cultural influence stems from the fact that people once voted for them. Obama has not only largely opted out of using his high profile to serve the public interest, but he's also chosen to insultingly f- to flout it. It's long past time to end the cult of hero worship around this narcissistic plutocrat. Wow. All right, and about the author, Liza Featherstone is a columnist for Jacobin, a freelance journalist, and the author of Selling Women Short, the landmark battle for workers' rights at Walmart. Okay, that was a lot of info. I'm going to take a bit of a music break. We're going to play the rest of the album from uh, Hopefully Limitless, two more songs, and then we'll be back with more info. Please do stay tuned.
0: If I'm okay, I'm gonna hold on to how it feels. Today Gonna make it Just gonna make it for today, we'll deal with tomorrow when it comes, oh, so today is just a day. Feel alright. Gonna take the bullshit as it comes, cause I know I'm alright. Gonna take the bullshit as it comes, cause I know I'm alright. Gonna take the bullshit as it comes, cause you know alright. Gonna take the bullshit as it comes, cause I know I'm not the one. So today is just a day. Gonna make it for what today we'll deal with.
2: To move forward for 79 years from 1937 to the present the san francisco police department has been involved in several major instances of misconduct and racial discrimination all of which have been well documented in 1937 the mayor and DA working together uncovered police corruption including payoffs and staged raids Officers were fired, the entire police commission was forced to resign, and a scathing two million word report was issued. That report was stolen from the city clerk's office and has not been seen since 1937. In 1943, the San Francisco Chronicle ran an expose on police corruption. No officers were disciplined. In 1955, the paper ran a 12 part series on police corruption. No officers were disciplined. In 1965, San Francisco officers arrested a group of civil rights lawyers who refused to allow the police to enter a fundraiser for the gay community. At trial, all charges against those lawyers were dismissed. No officers were disciplined. In 1966, San Francisco officers targeted the transgender community by arresting and mistreating customers at the Camp Town Cafeteria. Rioting followed. No officers were disciplined. In 1973, public advocates filed a lawsuit against the city for racial bias in the police department's entrance exams and in the department's promotion policies. That lawsuit resulted in a federal consent decree that was not lifted until 1998, a period of 25 years that included continuing litigation. In
1: 1998,
2: the city of San Francisco pledged that 45% of all new recruits in the police department would be people of color. In 1979, after the manslaughter conviction of Dan White and the ensuing riots, several lawsuits were filed by protesters against the police department for excessive force no officers were disciplined in 1984 four officers were fired for paying a prostitute to perform sex acts on an unwilling cadet in 1988 Dolores Huerta was beaten by police at a peaceful protest that was caught on video and televised widely the city paid for a a substantial settlement, and no officers were disciplined. In 1989, an ACT UP protest was interrupted by police beatings and arrests. A class action lawsuit followed, along with suspensions and resignations by officers. The Office of, of Citizens Complaints found that the Deputy Chief Jordan had ordered the sweep and recommended that he be demoted. In 1992, during the Rodney King demonstrations, San Francisco officers made widespread arrests. As well, 2,000 copies of the San Francisco Bay Times that ran an unflattering story about the department were stolen and found at a police station. That led to the firing of Chief Hungisto, and an officer who was involved in the theft of the papers became the POA president. In 1995, San Francisco officers raided a New Year's Eve AIDS benefit. The police commission found four officers used excessive force, none were fired. Also, at that time, Aaron Williams, a black man, died in police custody. An officer was deemed to have been involved in the death, for which he was not fired, but suspended for 90 days. In 2002 and 2003, in 2002, three off-duty officers, one of whom was the son of the then assistant chief, assaulted two civilians who refused to give them their fajitas. Dubbed fajita gate, the grand jury indicted the entire leadership of the police department for covering up that incident. However, all of the charges were dropped. A civil jury awarded damages to the victims of the beating. In 2005, there was VideoGate. An officer at the Bayview station posted a video that parodied racist, sexist, and homophobic subjects. The result was that over a dozen officers were disciplined. The officer who made the video resigned. He was not fired. And two other officers were suspended, each for 360 days. 2006 to 2007, the San Francisco Chronicle ran a three month long series on the department's use of force. Then, Chief Fong dismissed the report and no changes were implemented. In 2009, the attorney for the police department's internal affairs division brought a case against the then deputy chief for failure to follow the department's policies on how to deal with allegations of domestic violence. As a result, the police commission demoted him to captain. The city subsequently promoted that captain to chief. After which, the city's lawyer, who had brought the case against that officer, was fired. She sued for wrongful termination and received a settlement that cost the city $750,000. Finally, in 2011, three officers were indicted by the federal government for illegal searches, thefts, and robbery. All were convicted, and the Fed's release of information from those cases led to Textgate and to the report by the Blue Ribbon Panel. So, that's the history. Seventy-nine years of lawsuits, settlements, officer discipline, promotions, Exposes by newspapers, city issued reports, a grand jury indictment, resignation of an entire police commission, and a 25 year long consent decree. And sadly, little has changed. What we know from this history is that these instances of misconduct are not isolated incidents or aberrations. Rather, they are part of a 79 year pattern of systemic misconduct and cultural entrenchment within the department. That history reveals the many obstacles to reform. Among them, failure of city leadership, politicization of the police commission, failure of of police leadership, failure of effective civilian oversight, and resistance from the police union. I believe. That resistance from the police union poses the greatest obstacle to reform. Now, I am a staunch supporter of unions, and I have never crossed a picket line, and I never will. That being said, police unions are unique. Police officers are not like other workers. They have state sanctioned power of life and death over all of us. While most unions in the United States have grown weaker since the 70s, police unions have grown stronger. We all know that they can make life very difficult for elected officials by attacking them as soft on crime, and they have deep pockets to fund political candidates who will do their bidding. Sadly, police unions throughout the country over the last 50 years have opposed police reforms, ranging from having to wear name tags on their uniforms, to the use of body-worn cameras, to documenting uses of force. This year, Newark, New Jersey created a civilian review board that was acclaimed as a model of oversight. The city's police union immediately announced that it would sue to shut it down. Here in San Francisco, the new use of force policy unanimously approved by the police commission in June, to my knowledge, has not yet been implemented because it's being held up in the POA's meet and confer process. Professor Samuel Walker, an emeritus professor of criminal justice at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and an expert on police accountability, says that police unions have created a culture of impunity. It is this culture of impunity that permeates the San Francisco Police Department, as has been well documented in our report. The San Francisco Police Department has a not on my watch pledge that says, I pledge to serve the people of San Francisco faithfully and honestly without prejudice. I will not tolerate hate or bigotry in our community or from my fellow officers. I will confront intolerance and report any such conduct without Question or pause, I will maintain the integrity of the San Francisco Police Department and safeguard the trust of the people of San Francisco. I will treat members of the community as I would hope to be treated myself. I will pursue justice with compassion and I respect the dignity of others. For those who would suggest there is any place for the stain of intolerance, I pledge not on my watch. The department's the department's former POA president and current paid consultant to the department, on his Facebook page, derided that pledge. He called officers who reported misconduct of other officers trained snitches. Commenters on his page, undoubtedly police officers, wanted the names of the snitches so they could be taken care of characterized sensitivity training as bullshit and about officers who are whistleblowers said i hope it doesn't get ugly out there someone could get hurt this is talk one would expect from gang members and from thugs not from the leadership of a police union i believe that the great majority of police officers in San Francisco that belong to the POA are not like those who made those comments. So it is my hope that the good people in the department, the officers who see reform as a positive for the department, will find their voices and will join together to bring new leadership to the POA. It is also my hope that you, the city leadership, will find your voices And display the political will to stand up to intimidation, that you will say no to those who oppose the meaningful and doable reforms we have recommended and that the community supports. I implore you to put aside your political differences and stand united in moving forward to implement these recommendations. Do it because the lives of the people of San Francisco are at stake. Let us not be condemned to repeat the past. The time is ripe to do right. Thank you.
1: All right, that was Judge Ladoris Cordell on 79 years of SFPD misconduct, and that was from 2016. Uh, thanks to Larry Bob for sharing that. I hadn't seen that, and I thought that'd be really good to to share on the on the show right now. Started a little bit earlier than I anticipated. Thought we'd just play it the entire way through. <sighs> uh, <whew>. yeah. <clears throat> I'm gonna take a, a deep breath here, and coming up next, because there is stuff that's next. I thought. I would uh, share a few um, upcoming events that are happening. Um, One is Queer Visions, which is happening now at the Hate Street Art Center, and um, this weekend is the last weekend for it. So the Hate Street Art Center is proud to present Queer Visions, an exhibition that brings together LGBTQ plus artists and institutions to explore the roles of nightlife in the creation of queer community in San Francisco, as well as the importance of chosen families and genealogies in the shaping of individual queer identities. Anchored by a display of pinbacks from the Stud Archive, the exhibition will look at iconic taverns and gathering places in San Francisco that have provided haven and joy for the LGBTQ community since the 1960s, as well as work by young queer artists considering the role of their queer families and role models in their sense of self. And... Uh, queer Visions begins with a display of posters by Todd Trexler, a gay artist who, in the early 1970s, made a series of posters for the Palace Theater, advertising performances by groups including the Cockettes and Divine. Pinbacks from the Stud Archive are displayed alongside historic photographs and artifacts, offering up a portrait of queer life and nightlife in San Francisco from the 1970s to the 1990s. Photographer and filmmaker Lauren Tabak's portraits of patrons at the Lexington. San Francisco's last lesbian bar continued the exploration of the centrality of queer bars and taverns to the formation of LGBTQ communities in San Francisco. The exhibition also includes a print series by historian, uh, printer, and teacher Katie Gilmartin called Pulps, irreverent uh, adaptations of pulp novel covers that evoke San Francisco's queer history and landmarks. The second half of the exhibition presents work that looks at intergenerational queer relationships and identity explorations by younger queer artists. Lauren Tabak's Gay Face series is portraits of LGBTQ plus folks alongside statements about how they manifest their queerness in the world. A retrospective of prints from the Queer Ancestors project directed by Katie Gilmartin features a range of images and texts that respond to questions these young artists were asked about who they see as their queer ancestors and role models as well as the kind of ancestors they want to become. Finally, artwork by Amir Kadar created for For Together and the Black Alliance for Just Immigration looks at the importance of queer chosen family particularly in immigrant communities. Queervisions will be on view at the Hate Street Art Center from June 18th through August 15th. So, this weekend is the last few days you can check it out. Prints and merchandise based on the Stud Archive pinback collection are on sale online, and they provide a link and we'll share this on our page uh, in person and in person alongside commemorative posters. Thank you to our generous sponsors. And uh, the, que- the Queer Visions, it's happening again at um, the Hate Street Art Center. And it'll be, so, Friday to Sunday um, from 12 p.m. to 6 p.m. And um, the art center, again, is at 215 Hate Street at Laguna. So, um, please do check it out, and we'll provide a link again on our website. I'm looking forward to seeing it for sure. Also, um, another event that's happening, this is coming up uh, in September, Monday, September 13th. CRCAA intro to the Five Methods webinar. And uh, this is an event by CRC Allies and Accomplices. I'll read a little bit about this. Um, This is a free event. Uh, CRC Allies and Accomplices is once again calling on white folks to join us to talk about how to effectively fight against the persistent reestablishment of white supremacy in this moment by incorporating the Five Methods in your life, work and organizing. We know that white supremacy is the status quo and that if we do not actively combat it, white supremacy will persistently reestablish itself, no matter where we are. CRC has taught us that to effectively combat white supremacy, white people must divest of white power and weaponize white privilege, and they have provided us with five methods by which to do just this. Join us for this interactive webinar to learn about these methods. And um, for access info, this is a... uh, This is a two-hour virtual webinar with no breaks. Closed captioning through Google Slides will be provided. Audio descriptions of speakers and of images will be offered throughout the presentation. All CRCAA spaces are sober spaces, so please arrive sober and stay sober during the event. This is an accessibility and a security issue for CRCAA. So there's an invite that is on Facebook. And um, let me see if there's also on another link here. Uh, where you can register online. So I'll provide the link on our page, weeklyrev.org. So look for that, that should be up by the end of the day. You can also find it on Facebook if you look for CRCAA Intro to the Five Methods webinar. And again, oh, I didn't mention the time. It's uh, Monday, September 13th from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Pacific time. All right, we'll play uh, some music. And then I'm uh, going to play uh, some footage from a teach And this is a song I haven't heard yet called uh, Heather Hire Fuck Trump. Um, and uh, the title alone, I thought, I haven't listened to it yet, but I thought it would be uh, worth sharing. So here we go. And it's by Word.
3: Kill my child
4: and shut, her up. shut her up. Well, guess what? Well, guess what? You just magnified, you just magnified her. her. It's me. Back. Heather Hay arrested power. Nazi punks fuck off. Not my presence. back to blow up from a nuclear bomb. I'm about to show up, got the right to bear arms. If you we don't, we'll die tomorrow. I'm a come for them Take your torch holding motherfuckers right in your wrongs. Nazis marching on the streets and Nazis in charge. There's even Nazis on these beats and Nazis on the walls. Questioning me, I got the motherfucking scars. And it could have been me who got crushed by that car. American free, it's white man free for all. I'm going to tell you the truth. I got that white skin card. I never sat back and said, oh, thank God, oh, God. I cried looking out my back. Should have been there too, Smash Nazis for the cause. And I used to do that, but now my kids are my job. And thanks to my wife, I got the time to spit bars. This'll cost my paycheck, getting stalked by my bars. Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him. Fuck afraid pundits and the lies who praise him. Fuck you, white apologists, privilege is amazing. I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in. Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him. Fuck afraid pundits and the lies who praise him. Fuck you, white apologists, privilege is amazing. I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in. I didn't hang up the weapon, it was just a hiatus. Hiatus, not to speak the truth, I'm the latest single news channel calling in the favors bunch of masturbators afraid to be the bravest one in three black men locked behind cages privileged ignoramus posting on your pages come catch me i'd love to show you what the pain is hide behind your hoods you'll know what afraid is mass on our faces no difference what our races. only race we faces protection from our neighbors what global meltdown that's what your aim is you won't get through my door motherfucking racist raise fists on constitution pages that don't stop the cops from escorting all your babies to get home safe we shot gas and taser the whole world knows what our greatest
0: mistake is donald trump is a fucking piece of shit donald trump just is a fucking piece of shit donald trump just is a fucking piece of shit donald trump just is a Up the white
3: power structure today is just as much uh, interested in perpetuating
0: slavery as the white power structure was a hundred years ago, only now they use modern methods of doing so, and uh, realizing that the black people in this country are waking up and becoming filled with a desire to be uh, looked upon as men and as
1: human beings, the being white to slow down this, uh, struggle for freedom, human dignity, uh, sure. Okay, that was Heather Heyer, Fuck Trump, uh, featuring DJ Wayne Ski, and by Awkward. So we'll share a link to that as well on our website. <sighs> Alright, I've done a lot of talking this episode. So, um, as always, I like to uh, amplify other people's voices. And this is um, a a lecture on the politics of crime data and its uses by uh, Tamara K. Knopper that came out on July 27th of this year, Counting Crime. And it's about an hour, almost two hours long. So we only have about an hour left on the show. I'm gonna play the first hour or so and provide a link to it and um, please enjoy. Also, the video does have uh, ASL interpretation as well. So I think that's going to be it for me. I'm going to sit here and listen, and I'll be checking in at the end of the show. Thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, if you'd like to donate, please go to weeklyrev.org and click on our donation tab. You can also donate to Mutiny Radio, and I believe that will be it for now, and let's get started on this uh, lecture.
3: Good evening, everybody. It is so good to be here. My name is Tamara Knopper, and I want to thank you for joining us for this data literacy lecture on counting crime. Uh, I just want to thank our co-sponsors. we were very lucky to have several organizations that offer to co-sponsor. And so tonight, um, Haymarket, of course, Haymarket Books, but also uh, along with that is Interrupting Criminalization, Survived and Punished, Community Resource Hub for Safety and Accountability, 18 Million Rising, Critical Resistance, Civil Rights Corps. Um, And uh, this event is free, um, but donations are being shared with the National Bail Fund Network, who does some really important work. Um, I wanna thank in particular, Sean Larson from Haymarket Books, as well as Eva Nagao, and Miriam Kaba from Interrupting Criminalization um, for the work uh, with planning and then I also want to thank um, our ASL interpreters tonight Loshanda, Tofer, Kenton and Aaron, and also our closed captioning uh, person Corey. Thank you so much to all of you. Um, so uh, we're going to get started. We're going to get into a lot tonight. This is a data literacy lecture so we're going to be talking about some major data sources we're going to think about some of the ways that crime gets measured Um, and we're also going to be thinking a lot about the political and social context of crime data and um, some of the debates and changes that are going on. I want to start though with um, honoring Mr. Robert Moses who recently passed away. Um, A big part of my um, approach to data literacy is thinking about it through the politics of participatory democracy. And so I'm deeply influenced by Ella Baker and also uh, um, Robert Moses. And so I just wanna take a moment to honor him um, and to thank uh, Mr. Moses for his life and work and his dedication. Um, He's somebody who took very seriously the politics of data literacy as also a means of self-determination of working towards, um, you know, participatory democracy and of political power. Um, So thank you, Mr. Moses. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. This is what I'm like in my real classroom, y'all. I'm always getting all emotional and you're going to just have to kind of deal with it, right? You know? Okay, here we go. So we're going to start here at the topics we're going to be looking at here.
1: There's just a little bit of a technical delay, and again, we are listening to "Counting Crime: A Lecture on the Politics of Crime Data" uh, by Tamara Knopper. And let's see—I believe it should get started pretty, pretty soon after. And this is on YouTube, and we'll also share a link on our page, weeklyrev.org, and there you can find the music we played on the episode, as well as the articles that were shared and the audio. Ah. Uh, from Judge LaDoris we also played. You can also find previous episodes as well.
3: Hi, everybody. We're back. Thank you for bearing with us with the technical issues. Um, So here's an outline of what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to look at early crime data sources, then two of my favorite scholars, W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells-Barnett. We're also going to be looking at what are considered the two official national crime data sources, Um, the Uniform Crime Report, and the National Crime Victimization Survey. We're going to look at some of the ways that the reporting happens for the UCR, and we're also going to dig into kind of what does violent crime mean according to these data sources, and what are the specific crimes that get um, kind of measured in that. Then we're going to end with CompStat. Throughout, I'm also going to be kind of raising some questions of how um, sometimes abolitionists have challenged crime data uh, narratives in the process. Okay. So this is W.E.B. Du Bois, right? I just thought this was one of the best pictures. I hadn't seen this picture. Um, and so uh, I was trying to figure out what picture would I would like, and I thought this was a great one here. Now, this is a quote of his. Um, he says, It is doubtful if any is extremely doubtful. If any satisfactory study of Negro crime and lynching can be made for a generation or more in the present condition of public mind, which renders it almost impossible to get at facts and real conditions. Now, Dr. Du Bois was somebody who thought a lot about crime. Um, it was a big focus of a lot of his research. Um, and he also experienced being um, targeted for punishment unfairly um, and disproportionately when he was young. When he was in high school, he got in trouble for stealing some grapes with some other folks, uh, other young people from a prominent citizen in Great Barrington. And he was threatened with having to go to like reformatory school. And his principal intervened. Um, He did not write a lot about that incident, but he did talk about how he felt that he was going to be punished more extremely than he should have been because of the quote unquote prominence of the person who he stole the grapes from. He also, I mean, this Du Bois, I mean, he was writing a column for T. Thomas Fortune's New York Globe newspaper at 15 years old, y'all, okay? So at 15 years old, he was writing this column. He would write like, you know, a paragraph, a column, um, and he wrote a lot about crime. And so early on as a teenager, he was thinking a lot about crime and about specifically racism and punishment right and this is a theme that would be part of his career um especially in terms of his social science research so for example this book here on the left the suppression of african slave trade is based upon his uh, dissertation research at harvard university and if you haven't read um there's an introduction in this version by dr sidiya hartman which is a really lovely introduction and in this book He raises questions about crime and about people breaking the law. Specifically, he was interested in these questions about why, right, um, did people get to kind of keep engaging in illegal acts in the slave trade? And what was the limited forms of punishment that they got? And so he was thinking a lot about kind of these political contradictions about who got punished and what got punished. Of course, many of us know about his landmark social science study, the Philadelphia Negro. And um, you know, years later, he wrote a kind of escaping uh, essay called the University of Pennsylvania. And he talked about um, being brought to Philadelphia and the Whartons, right, of the Wharton School, Wharton uh, School being the very famous business school at Penn. Um, and these philanthropists bringing him to conduct this study. And he said that he was quite aware of the fact that he felt that they were bringing him to basically do this research to confirm that black people supposedly were to blame for the problems in the city. And so he was very aware that there was already these racist ideas about black people that people wanted to have, quote unquote, scientific evidence of. And he was trying to do kind of subversive, you know, kind of sociology to challenge that. Um, And, you know, I have to say, if you haven't read the University of Pennsylvania essay, it is quite a great essay. He talks about how he was asked to take a pack of idiots, as he calls them, on a tour of the slums, right? And the disrespect he experienced as um, a scholar uh, by the University of Pennsylvania. So in this study, he's also thinking about issues of crime. And one of the things that Dr. Du Bois does is he's also thinking about how do we interpret data right? And so when he says, you know, the world was thinking wrong about race because it did not know. In my mind, it was a matter of prejudice, right? A a matter of ignorance, excuse me. And so he was also saying that, you know, um, he was an early challenger to positivism. The idea that the data just kind of tells the truth, right? Um, And he's really actually kind of an early critic of evidence-based kind of arguments that we see today, right? He was very big on thinking about interpretation through the lens of politics history but also through a certain kind of commitment towards challenging racism right now there have been some questions about some of his kind of moralizing and some of his you know kind of uh, class politics in his analysis so he was not always above some kind of you know classist interpretations but he very much was interested in challenging the idea that data itself tells the truth about the world or people, and he was very much interested in the politics of interpretation, um, as well as the politics of data collection. So this is Du Bois, for example, on what today is known as white-collar crime. Now white-collar crime is not an actual crime in terms of um, when you get arrested, you don't get arrested for white-collar crime. A sociological heuristic, right? So this is Dr. Edwin Sutherland, and um, he was the president of the American Sociological Association. Back in the day, the American Sociological Association was called the American Sociological Society. But ass would have, you know, it got kind of embarrassing to say that's what the organization was. I'm sorry, that just makes me laugh, y'all. Right. Really, they they create an organization called ASS, right? That would have made first very, very interesting uh conference, you know, bags and, you know, merch and stuff. But they changed it to the American Sociological Association, because that just, you know, I guess sounds more professional. And Dr. Sutherland was the um chair, right? Um of uh, the president of the ASA, and he gave this very famous kind of address called white-collar criminality. It even got attention from major kind of newspapers, which you might be shocked to find out. A lot of times, sociological addresses at, you know, uh, conferences don't get that attention. And so, in fact, the FBI, right, even references it, right? So they have this webpage um, from the FBI called white-collar crime. And they even talk about Dr. Sutherland's you know, concept, right? And here they talk about you know, how they measure, right? What conceptually would be considered white collar crime. So these are laws, right? Or um, you know, crimes that they would investigate is white collar crime, but it's not an actual crime. And part of the reason I'm bringing this up is one, is to kind of draw attention to the fact that Dr. Du Bois was thinking quite early on about this idea of kind of white collar crime, right? But um, and so here he talks about in the Philadelphia Negro that certain crimes are not punished in Philadelphia because the public opinion is lenient, as for instance embezzlement, forgery, and certain sorts of stealing. On the other hand, a commercial community is apt to punish with severity petty thieving, breaches of the peace, and personal assault or burglary. So here you see Dr. Du Bois one kind of you know um, thinking about which crimes are tend to be more policed. He's also thinking about some of the class politics, right? Um, and so Dr. Sutherland, you know, later kind of more formalizes this thinking. And one of the things that Dr. Sutherland was trying to do was he was saying, um, uh, and he said, social scientists who study crime tend to focus on crimes among poor and working class people, but not so much among business people. And so he associated white collar crime with business People, right, um, and but this is something that it also raises an important point about data literacy around crime. Right, today you'll see, for example, people sometimes use the phrase white collar crime, but this is kind of an analytical framework. It's both kind of a sociological concept. It's both kind of a political critique. Right, talking about who gets, um, you know, uh, punished or not. But it's not necessarily what is somebody is um, arrested for, right? Um, even though the FBI uses the phrase itself, it's also, you know, what you get arrested for and what ends up kind of being categorized as data can also be different things. And so this is also a bigger conversation about data literacy, right? The difference between what you get arrested for how that gets measured legally, right? And in terms of the criminal justice system and prosecution or punishment, how we as people who collect data, right? Might think about it. In fact, right now there's all these debates about measuring white collar crime and creating kind of a white collar crime data set. And there's all these interesting kind of studies and debates about how would they measure that? But that's on the data collection side, right? And so what happens in the criminal justice system and what happens on data collection and then what gets disseminated as discourse, they can correspond, but they're not always one in the same thing. And so again, I want to draw attention to Du Bois being an early kind of critic of white collar crime, but also this issue around data literacy and kind of being able to move across different spheres to think about this. Okay? Now let's talk about polling, right? So. As we know, right, there's a lot of stuff about people's views of the police and of crime. And this is something that we're seeing a lot with the defund the police. So some people are saying things like, um, you know, this polling data shows this, people support or not for defund the police. Or they say, this polling data shows, um, you know, um, concerns about crime being up or down, right? Now, polling data had been around for a long time by the time Dr. Du Bois was doing this research. But it was around the progressive era of Dr. Du Bois that you started seeing more polls um, and survey attitudes done by social reformers regarding people's views of policy or or quote, unquote, social problems. And so this is a study, and you've seen a lot of people quote this study as a critique of using um, kind of uh, people's opinion polls about crime, right? But here, this is from 2016. It says voters' perceptions of crime continue to conflict with reality. Imagine that, right? Um, And so this is something where um, here, but this is interesting here, the way they kind of frame it is saying, despite decreases in US violent and property crime rates, and again, later we're gonna talk about how is violent crime uh, usually been measured in these conversations. They say most voters say crime has gotten worse, right? So the reason I bring this up is one, there's this kind of whole question about, do people really know how much crime exists, right? And what are their perceptions and where do those perceptions come from? But also part of the idea that the voters' perceptions conflict with reality is this kind of reification that this crime data is telling us the truth about crime, right? We've seen this also among abolitionists, for example. Um, You know, uh, Several different kind of abolitionist kind of commentary will say um, there is a prison boom or you know a prison building boom despite violent crime being on the decline. Right now we can raise some critical questions: Should people's political kind of um, campaigns ever be based upon kind of does crime go up or down? Right? Should our condemnation of prison building or policing or anything be connected to that? But what you see here is even in these kind of critiques of crime data, right, and about people's perceptions, there's still this idea that the crime data is telling us the truth, okay? Now, Dr. Du Bois, um, he conducts one of the first formal investigations of African Americans' views of the criminal justice system in 1904, and this is as um, he's the leadership of Atlanta University. Now, real quickly, I just want to give A shout out to Dr. Earl Wright II. Um, Dr. Earl Wright is a sociologist. He is at Rhodes College now. And he's been doing a lot of scholarship on Dr. Du Bois and the Atlanta School of Sociology for at least two decades. And he's been doing a lot of work to really show that the Atlanta School was the first U.S. School of Sociology, not the Chicago School. And also, he does a lot of really important work, I just want to point out challenging kind of the charismatic scholar image of Du Bois, right? Um, he shows a lot of other scholars um, and grad students and students and community members who contributed to the Atlanta school of sociology, okay? So Dr. Du Bois, um, he conducts this crime poll and this, uh, a lot of the um, information I'm gonna give, and I'm gonna show you the study is from Dr. Sean L. Gabbidon. I hope I'm pronouncing Dr. Gabadon's name correctly. And so a lot of this information comes from him. And this comes from a study of his, and I'm gonna show you some of the tables um, or some of the information from the study. And so Dr. Dubois is thinking about, you know, people's perceptions of crime and where are they getting kind of the perceptions of if crime is up or down. He's also doing some early studies about people's perspectives of the police. What do they think the function of the police is and how do they think people get treated? Now, what I thought was fascinating is he does studies. He got permission from the Atlanta public school system to interview 1500 black students. I mean, these are pretty young people, ages nine, right? To ask their views about the police. You don't see that a lot in kind of polling data today, but he got permission and he interviewed them. And he also interviewed black people ages 13 to 21. And he also got you know perspectives from city officials, police chiefs and private citizens, right? So let me show you, okay. Um, So this is, you know, please wait while the document is being prepared. We're not gonna wait y'all, we can't wait. This information is so interesting. All right, here we go. So this is the article an Early American Crime Poll by Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois Um, and here, right? For example, you know, what is the purpose of the law, right? What are the purpose of the courts? Purpose of the police, arresting people versus protecting them. This is some interesting numbers here, right? Now you had a lot of people who didn't give any response, right? But you know, they say the purpose of the police is to arrest them. That outnumbers protecting them. Um, Treatment by the police, usually kind to them, unkind to them. You see there's a significant number that says unkind to them. I thought this was some interesting data too, right? Um, Now, here, older African Americans means ages 13 to 21 for Dr. Du Bois and the Atlanta School uh, Scholars. Have police ever helped or protected you, right? That's some interesting stuff here, right? Okay. Opinion of those sent to the chain gang, bad and unfortunate. So, questions about punishment, right? Um, You know, punishment made them worse. These are some interesting questions that Du Bois even kind of posed in the polls, okay? So, now let's go back to presentation here. Uh, Here we go. Now, Ida B. Wells-Barnett, right? Now, Ida B. Wells-Barnett thought a lot about crime And um, both in terms of um, policing and punishment through uh, lynching and racial violence by both uh, the police and the courts, but also from white vigilantes. Um, And so she talks here, she says, the reason our race furnishes so large a share of the convicts is that the judges, juries, and other officials of the courts are white men who share these prejudices. They also make the laws. It is wholly in their power to extend clemency to white criminals and meet severe punishment to black criminals for the same or lesser crimes. And so early on, she was somebody who was very critical of the way that crime data, and we're going to look at, for example, why 1893, right? Why 1890 is kind of significant in this conversation when we talk about some of the prison census data, but she talks about basically, um, you know, the way people are interpreting the data. Right, and what they're you know willing to kind of have sympathy for for white people who are in the criminal justice system or prisons, but not for black people, right? And so again, both Dr. Ida, um, Dr. DuBois, and uh, Mrs. Wells Barnett is they're thinking a lot about the issue of interpretation of data. Now, here are several uh, works by um, Ida B. Wells and. Um, You know, some of these start as pamphlets. And this is something that I think about Miriam Kaba here. And, you know, Miriam and um, I worked with her on the book, uh, We Do This Till We Free Us, um, so full disclosure. And full disclosure, I think the book is great. Um, But she would, you know, Ida B. Wells wrote a lot of these things originally as pamphlets. So you see things like price 15 cents. Sometimes she worked with different organizations, particularly Black women's groups, who would help raise money for the printing and publishing of these pamphlets and all these have eventually become books or kind of their own publications uh, through more formal channels. This is what she wrote Southern Horrors, Lynch Law and All Its Phases when she was uh, driven out of Memphis. She was actually not in Memphis at the time, thank goodness, but she was um, a writer, editor, and part owner of the Memphis Free Speech. In fact, when they were asking her if she'd come on as editor, she said, no, you gotta make me a part owner. I mean, she was just so awesome, wasn't she? So one of the things that she did was she wrote very critically about lynching. She herself originally um, didn't always question the assumptions about um, black criminality um, that went into explaining lynching, meaning people would say, well, Black people did certain things and they were punished unfairly. And that was actually a widespread kind of argument. um, The idea that they were just punished excessively. Frederick Douglass, um, uh, who was a great comrade of hers, she also worked closely with um, Jane Addams, right, of the Hull House. At certain points, they believed that Black people were kind of just doing certain activities, but that they were being punished too harshly with lynching. Um, Ida B. Wells was really somebody who pushed critically to even think about was the crime even happening to the degree that people thought it was. And she actually changed Frederick Douglass's view. He credited her with um, getting her him to think more critically about his beliefs about um, Black behavior. And so she basically was challenging the assumption that um, it was being argued that black men were being lynched because they're raping white women. She was not opposed, and this is a very important point here. She was not opposed to the assumption that interracial rape could exist, right? She understood that sexual violence could exist. She was not opposed to assuming that could happen. But what she did was she documented and she went through a lot of lynching data and she went through newspaper articles She also got a lot, a lot of people trusted her, a lot of Black people wrote her letters and told her stuff in confidence about what they had witnessed or seen with lynchings. Um, And so she did basically a multi-method study and she showed um, that there were several, you know, a lot of these cases where Black men were being accused of raping white women, that they were actually um, consensual interracial relationships but that a lot of white women would claim that they were not um, either under the threat of duress from other white people or because they didn't wanna be basically um, excommunicated from whiteness, right? Um, and so she was someone who just had such a sophisticated worldview. Um, she did not fetishize interracial relationships, but she understood that the social control around them was part of how people um, you know, created false claims about black men, right? So this was considered very incendiary when she said that um, these, that many of these relationships are actually consensual and that white women are not being forced into these relationships. And so they basically came and burned down her, they destroyed her office. Um, They basically kind of put a price on her head and she wrote um, in exile and that was actually the name that she wrote under was exiled for a while, right? She basically wrote this to kind of tell the truth about, you know, to talk about what happened to her paper. And she did not come back down to the South for almost three decades. It wasn't until she, um, hold on a second here. It wasn't until this happened, right? So this is a case of um, black people in Arkansas who were sharecroppers that were just trying to start a union and um, uh, a lot of white people didn't like that. And they came and um, started a confrontation with them and physically attacked them, killed and um, assaulted a lot of black people. And several black men were put on trial um, and very you know, quickly given, I mean, literally like within so many minutes, um, were given the death sentence, right? Uh, in terms of being um, declared guilty and given the death sentence. So Ida B. Wells comes back to the south, in you know later in her life, like almost thirty years later, and takes uh, the story down of these men, and she writes the Arkansas race riot, right? And you can actually find copies of all of this stuff um, online uh, uh, without having to pay for it, right? Um, so one of the things is is that she, um, hold on a second here. She writes this, and one of the things she says is, she says, um, what was their crime? She goes, they basically wanted to start a union. It was called a crime. And so she was thinking quite critically about how is crime measured and why is that um, Black people's attempts at freedom, at, you know, kind of, you know, dignity um, or just being able to kind of live freely, right, Um, being um, uh, punished, right? Um, through lynching or, in this case, through the death penalty, right? Now the quote that you saw from um, uh, 1893 comes from this publication, right? And this was a series of pamphlets, right, and you can find this online here, that she wrote with uh, people like Frederick Douglass, I, Garland Penn, and this man, Ferdinand Barnett, who would eventually become her husband, right? I just want to say real quick about Ferdinand Barnett, right? uh, he was known for writing really lovely love letters, according to their daughter, Elfrida um, Barnett Duster. So before people were sliding in DMs, he was known for writing her letters while she was out doing her political work. And um, also, when they got married, I just have to say this: he would do a lot of the cooking, and he would often cook two meats, two meats, y'all. Now I know I sound like an Arby's commercial, but two meats, okay? Now. This is a pamphlet that they wrote and, you know, here you have, you know, Ida B. Wells sent on address of three cents right for postage and it was a pamphlet. This is really early on thinking critically about the convict lease system and class legislation and so forth. I recommend, you know, I've taught some of these uh, documents in uh, my class classes for thinking about kind of early carceral studies uh, scholarship, right? Um, and so Ida B. Wells, the quote that you uh, read of hers comes from um, uh, uh, this pamphlet, right? And they're basically trying to challenge, you know, all the ways that Black people are being criminalized, right? So this is a red record, and um, this is, if you look here, it says, you know, tabulated statistics and alleged causes of lynchings in the United States, and this comes out in the mid 1890s, right? And, you know, Ida B. Wells could throw shade, right? Um, She was known for writing in her diary about, you know, uh, petty kind of views about, you know, other women she didn't think were so cute that were getting attention, right? I mean, can anyone relate to this, okay? You know, uh, Ida B. Wells being petty, right? Um, And she, you know, would do some of that, you know, throwing shade in her titles. Look at this title here. Respectfully submit to the 19th century civilization in the, quote, land of the free and the home of the brave, right? Now... This is, um, uh, I just want to point out, this quote comes from Dr. Naomi Murakawa, right? So this is um, uh, Dr. Murakawa here. Many people who uh, are um, study prisons and crime are aware of her scholarship. She is also the editor of the abolition um, paper series for Haymarket. Um, And here, she has this really great article. This article just recently came out. It's actually a chapter, okay, use of our cookies. I guess I'll accept the cookies, y'all. Okay, I'm gonna accept cookies, here we go. Now, this is a chapter that recently came out. I highly recommend this chapter. I think it's a great chapter. Um, it would be great for teaching in classes and for you know reading in study groups and stuff, right? About Ida B. Wells and Racial Criminalization. It comes from this uh, fairly newly published book, African American Political Thought. And she's basically looking at kind of how Ida B. Wells dealt with crime data, right? And um, this is a quote from her. She says, in a red record, Wells confronted lynching as part of the machinery of black criminalization. She recognized that lynching is quote, justified with numbers about alleged black criminality, statistics laden with racist ideology. A red record was therefore methodologically self-reflexive. It dialectically used murder data while reflecting on its limits. And it noted, quote, black innocence while challenging the very notion that black were on trial. And one of the things that Dr. Murakawa talks about that I think is really useful in this article for abolitionists to think about is, you know, as she says, this kind of uh, self-reflexive use of crime data. On one hand, she engages it, uh, Ida B. Wells Burnett. On the other hand, she calls the crime data into question itself, right? Um, that takes some skills. Also, though, she does not operate, and this is something that Dr. Maricallo emphasizes, is Ida B. Wells doesn't operate with kind of trying to prove black innocence per se. She's really calling into question kind of criminalization and specifically, um, you know, racial criminalization, right? And if we go back to um, the article here, right? Ida B. Wells on racial criminalization. This takes us to, this work here, right? And the term racial criminalization, Dr. Murakawa is quoting Dr. Um, Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I highly recommend his work for those who haven't read it, um, especially if you're thinking about things like, you know, predictive policing, if you're thinking about big data and policing and big data and criminalization. His book, The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America, um, just real quickly. um, Okay, here we go. This is um, Dr. Muhammad here. He is at Harvard University, right? And he, um, he defines racial criminalization as, quote, the stigmatization of crime as, quote, black, and the masking of crime among whites as individual failure. And one of the things he talks about is he talks about during the progressive era, right? The use of kind of crime data and statistics to claim that there's something specific about black people that was criminal. And so it was a way of using data, right? As a so-called, as a way to uh, um, promote racist views of the Negro criminal, quote, unquote, and to promote racist views of black inferiority. It was also treated as objective and it became a tool to shield white Americans from the charge of racism when they use black crime statistics to support discriminatory public policies and social welfare practices. One of the things he talks about is he also talks about the different interpretation of data when it came to white people versus black people who are caught up in the criminal justice system. He points out that part of racial criminalization is that when people interpreted the data, they would say, well, there's something specifically criminal about black people, and that crime gets racialized as black, right? Toni Morrison, for example, once said that when people talk about crime or welfare, she goes, they're really talking about black people that that's really what the conversation is about, right? And she was saying that obviously quite critically. And so um, Dr. Muhammad is getting at kind of the same point here that crime got associated with blackness, right? But he said when white people were caught up in the criminal justice system, particularly white European immigrants from Eastern Southern Europe, he said there was a lot more sympathy to kind of contextual factors. And so he said there'd be different expectations of punishment, but he also said, this idea that we should invest in certain communities to prevent crime was something that was afforded the so-called white criminal. But with black criminals, it was harsh punishment, right? And so today when we're thinking about you know, the calls for defund the police and about you know um, who should we be investing in, right? Um, or about you, know, uh, you know, decriminalization and so forth, right? Now obviously we want to decriminalize for everybody, right? But what are the racial politics of who's seen as deserving of decriminalization, or who's seen as deserving of kind of social investments and who's not, right? And Dr. Muhammad is showing that there's a long history of this. Also what Dr. Muhammad is showing that also Ida B. Wells and um, uh, Dr. Du Bois were getting at was that there's a long history of social science being involved in the criminal justice system, but also in racial criminalization. Through data collection, through interpretation, through kind of the idea that the statistics around crime and race tell us something supposedly about people, but also that this was used to kind of racially justify maintaining oppressive systems after right, um, the end of the Civil War and during the emancip- post-emancipation period. Right? Okay, so. Now, we're going to talk about some of the early national crime data sources here. So, what you have is there is always, you know, some of the data I was showing you um, by people like, um, uh, you know, the Atlanta University Crime Poll um, looking at Atlanta, for example, are local data. And so, there's been this kind of question about, well, how do we measure crime nationally? And that's going to take us to kind of the contemporary conversation. So, this is the bridge here. So before 1850, the crime data that was kind of used was states would, some states would compile crime data primarily from courts and prisons. The 1850 U.S. Census is kind of the first national counting of prisoners and what they were convicted of. So historically, the way people counted kind of national crime data was looking at prisoners,
0: right?
3: And the 1850 U.S. census is kind of significant also, um, and the counting of prisoners is significant around conversations of felony disenfranchisement. There's nothing in the, you know, Constitution originally that said who desert, who can vote in relationship to uh, 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 being convicted of a felon or um, being a former felon, quote-unquote, right? But by the time 1850 rolled around, there had already been a significant number of states that had opposed um, people who were uh, felons from being able to um, vote, right? What also happens in 1850 is there's also a lot of questions about race, Um, you know, about, because this is on the buildup to the end of slavery and the buildup to the civil war, legally slavery, slavery, and the buildup to the civil war. And so they're also counting, this is, um, racebox.org this is a data visualization from josh begley and if you don't know josh begley does some really amazing amazing data visualization what he does is he shows from the first kind of u.s census how race has changed right since then 1850 was the introduction of the term mulatto and the reason i bring this up is that this is not disconnected from kind of the counting of prisoners and so forth right there is this whole kind of conversation about the fitness of certain races for freedom, right? Especially, you know, this question about um, uh, are quote-unquote mulattoes or mixed-race Black people, are they, um, you know, uh, are they going to be different as a people um, compared to enslaved Africans, right? And so there's all these kind of things that are going on with the 1850 census that are about kind of the future of the country. Um, in the face of an impending civil war. And as kind of um, the debate about slavery versus freedom in states um, gets more and more kind of, you know, um, rises to a a certain kind of uh, uh, level. So the 1880 U.S. Census, this is the first nationwide collection of police data, which includes reports of quote, crimes known to the police. right? Um, And so for homicide, burglary, and arson. And this is a census where the race of prisoners was used to support racist arguments about Black criminality, right? This connects to also the 1890 census. So if we think back to Ida B. Wells, right? Um, and this quote here saying, you know, why do Black people furnish such a large share of the convicts, right? And she's saying, think about, you know, how um, anti-Black racism informs all of the structure of the criminal justice system, right? but also the different punishment that black people get, even if they do the same activity as a white person, right? She's responding in a lot of ways to the conversation that was emerging um, because of this type of data. And so people were starting to say, well, we have this census data and it shows you know, these disparities in terms of uh, black people being overrepresented in prison. And they were using this once again to you know, justify racist views of racial criminalization, right? Now, so as Dr. Muhammad says, prison statistics for the first time become the basis of a national discussion about blacks as a distinct and dangerous criminal population. Okay. So this takes us to, we're now gonna look at what are considered the two major national crime data sets today, right? So this was the early national crime data sets. One of the things that happened here, right, and the concerns that were raised about the prisoner counts and about the census data is this question about uniformity. They said, okay, so people might report this, but um, you know, is crime measured the same? Right? Are our statutes the same? Um, you know, in different states. And so this question about uniformity, so hence the name uniform crime report, right? This is one of the major um, uh, national crime data sets today, okay? So this is the FBI's website, the Uniform Crime Report, right? And um, here's, you know, it's website, okay. So there are a couple different players who become uh, the, the major proponents of kind of a uniform crime report. One is the International Association of the Chiefs of Police. Here they are here, right? Here's their website shaping the future of the police profession, right? They do all this kind of um, policy research kind of advocacy work and so forth, okay. And the way the story goes is it's kind of a, like if you look at kind of histories of the Uniform Crime Report, a lot of them will mention the International Association of the Chiefs of Police. We're gonna get to how that leaves out all these social reformers, social scientists in a moment. But basically, there was this concern that the police were being judged unfairly because of crime wave discourse. So today, as we know, there's these concerns that journalists are engaging in copaganda, that journalists who are talking about crime wave discourse are basically helping kind of, um, you know, um, they're trying to uh, um, discredit, you know, um, defund the police, and they're trying to help the police, right? But part of kind of the idea of crime wave discourse is sometimes the police have been concerned that it looks like they're not quote unquote doing their job. And we wanna bookmark that because part of the debate about crime data and how it's collected, but also how we interpret it, is this question about what we think the job of the police is, right? And the way that um, you know, this question about, you know what does crime data tell us about um, what the police officer's jobs are, but also do we think they're, quote, unquote, doing their job? Okay, so we want to bookmark that for later. Now, what happens is in 1927 at the meeting, they say, before energy is expended to improve police procedure, it will first be necessary to collect reliable statistical data. And they established the Committee on Uniform Crime Records, right? So part of it is they're saying we're getting judged unfairly as police, by journalists and by the media, and people and politicians are saying there's a crime wave, and we're not being, you know, and that we're not doing our jobs right, and that we should maybe kind of try to be better police officers, right? But they're saying before we do that, we need to kind of collect data. Okay. Now, one of the things is is that, as I said, if you look at a lot of kind of sources, they'll say, well, the International Association of Chiefs of Police were kind of the main, you know, um, proponents of this. Dr. Lawrence Rosen, who's a sociologist, has written quite a lot about the UCR, and I've assigned uh, um, some of his chapters in my classes. And he says, by only focusing on the IACP, we miss the role of social scientists, social reformers, and philanthropists, who also played a role in kind of pushing for, uh, and doing a lot of the labor that eventually became the Uniform Crime Report. This is the point also that Dr. Muhammad is making, right? When he's saying that, you know, the kind of, you know, development of crime statistics um, took a whole bunch of social reformers, right? And people who'd be considered quote unquote progressives were involved. So the American Statistical Association, some of them were pushing, members of it, were part of what was called the moral statistics movement. And that was very big in England or in Europe, excuse me, not just England, um, in Europe. And it was basically, um, you know, where they wanted a lot of data about um, crime, about kind of poverty, about, you know, um, social class, and about people's so-called behaviors, okay? And so some of the people who are involved with this ASA were um, also pushing for kind of better crime data, okay? And so Dr. Rosen points out that America's very first step to our national crime data system was a direct outgrowth of this movement. Right. Um, And so then the Rockefeller one of the um, uh, um, areas of the Rockefeller Foundation, but also the Social Science Research Council were involved in kind of funding and um, helping kind of bring about um, uh, what would eventually become uh, the origins of kind of a uniform crime reporting system. Okay, so here we go. Let's talk about some of the origins of the Uniform Crime Reporting System here. So the first report is published by the IACP in 1930, and it reported crimes from 400 cities in 43 states, right? Um, In 1930, Congress authorized the Bureau of Investigation, which eventually becomes the FBI, to collect, compile, and disseminate crime data. In fact, um, J. Edgar Hoover was involved in some of this work, right? And at that time, okay, they followed the summary reporting system model. Then in 1985, the NIBRS, National Incident-Based Reporting System model, is introduced. And in 1991, the FBI begins collecting data. So some of you are probably saying, well, what the heck is the SRS and the NIBRS? Well, don't you worry. We're about to learn about that in a moment, okay? Now, let's talk about the UCR today. The UCR is basically Um, collected from law enforcement agencies. And uh, the the agencies can basically be, um, you know, city, university, and college, county, state, tribal, and federal, right? Um, And so it's voluntarily submitted. This is a big thing is that sometimes people, um, even as we're kind of demanding data, let's say, right? Some people are demanding data, some people are not, right? around carceral systems, around the police, around uh, what some people call police accountability, um, there's often been an issue where the data is voluntarily submitted. And so these agencies voluntarily submit it. um, They either submit it through directly to the FBI UCR program, or if the state UCR program has it, right? And what these are are reported crimes to law enforcement and sometimes arrest data on some incidents. this is important. One of the things I want us to think about with data literacy around crime data is when does something become a crime, right? It gets ca- – an incident gets counted, but when does it become a crime? Is it if it's reported? Is it if is somebody is charged with something? Is it if is somebody is convicted of something, right? Um, you know, and so, That's something that, you know, the unit that we're looking at and that gets kind of labeled as crime and gets circulated as crime in these debates, that's not always, you know, we have to kind of also make decisions politically about do we think that's an actual crime, right, Um, versus do we think that a harm might have been reported or documented or listed, right? But when does something officially become a crime, right? all these data sets we're looking at um, from here on, we'll call everything a crime. And that raises some really important political questions for us as uh, people interpreting and debating this data, okay? Now, one of the issues is, these crimes are reported to law enforcement at these levels, right? But different states measure things differently, right? Um, uh, You know, uh, how a state might measure RAPE OR SEXUAL ASSAULT MIGHT BE DIFFERENT, FOR EXAMPLE. Um, HOW A STATE MIGHT MEASURE, YOU KNOW, THEY MIGHT HAVE DIFFERENT MEASURES FOR hom- HOMICIDE, RIGHT? AND SO THIS IS SOMETHING WHERE, WHAT DOES THAT MEAN IF YOU'RE TRYING TO CREATE A UNIFORM CRIME REPORTING? SO WHAT IT MEANS IS THE DATA THAT WE EVENTUALLY GET IN THE GENERAL PUBLIC AS, QUOTE, unquote NATIONAL CRIME, IS DATA THAT IS REPORTED CRIMES TO THE POLICE or to local law enforcement, then those local law enforcement agencies who are submitting the data have to do it according to a manual that the FBI gives. So there's all this kind of training and manual guidelines about how to kind of um, you know, uh, categorize these incidents that get reported to these local um, law enforcement or these law enforcement agencies for kind of uniform purposes. Right? And so again, we have to think about this as part of data literacy, right? Like how are people, what are these statutes and how is crime measured at, at this level? And then how is it getting classified, right? According to a manual, right? But also how is it getting input, right? So let's talk about this here. Here, right, in 2019, so one of the things that's happening is 2019 is the last uh, a major report that was published on um, crime data. They're still kind of putting the other report. And based on data received from 80% of law enforcement agencies in the country, this is 2019, what we're seeing talked about right now, when people are, you know, I'm sure you saw a lot of opinion pieces and and tweet threads about kind of, you know, um, uh, murder is up. but other crimes are down or other quote-unquote violent crimes or violent crime is up right? in these ways it's getting kind of put into conversation about defund the police or abolition or is this because, you know, of what's, you know, all these hypotheses that are being made, right? That data, a lot of what people are talking about right now is violent crime being up or certain violent crimes being up is based upon this quarterly report, okay? So basically What the UCR does is they provide an annual report, but they started providing quarterly reports like a couple of years ago. And part of it is, and this is something we wanna bookmark for when we get to CompStat, right? Part of it is, you know, data sources compete with each other. Let's be real, right? Data entrepreneurialism is real, trying to show data relevancy is real. And one of the major critiques of these national crime data sets have been that we're not getting kind of up-to-date crime information or we're not seeing kind of, you know, uh, current things, we're seeing things like a year later or so forth, right? So I can't say for certain. I certainly was not in the room when they said, why are we going to do kind of a quarterly report, right? But this, you know, there is this idea of like, we want to give you kind of the public, quote-unquote, more up-to-date data here, okay? So in June 2021, this was when the quarterly report data came out, and it was after this quarterly report data that you started seeing kind of a lot of these opinion pieces, right? This was based on data received from only 44% of law enforcement agencies in the country, okay? So let's talk about, we're gonna go to this data source in a moment. In 2017, the Crime Data Explorer is launched. This is now the major source of how the public will be able to access the Uniform Crime Report data, right? So they're kind of doing away with these major reports and all this stuff. They're going to be kind of launching this. So let's go to this here. I'm gonna close out some tabs here, right? Let me close out these tabs. Too many tabs, too many tabs, okay. Now, um, here we go, here we go, all right, now. Okay, so this is, the crime data explorer. And what was interesting is when you look at some of these pieces where people are saying, you know, crime is up and so forth and they're citing their source, they just kind of put a link to this page, which I thought was kind of funny. It was like, okay, right? So let's go here. As you can see, the most recent kind of data for national is 2019 at the kind of, you know, level here, right? So this is where I got that information about kind of 80%, right? This is the quarterly uniform crime report. This is where I got that data to talk about 44%. Now, this is what's a little confusing, and the reason I want to say this is a little confusing is they say the court they say the quarterly uniform crime report data for the nation are derived from the summary reporting system and the national incident based reporting system. The reason why this is confusing is I'm not totally sure if this quarterly data is based upon this. And the reason I say that is this. As of January 1st, 2021, FBI will only start collecting data through this. They have phased out the SRS system. And we're gonna talk about why that's significant in a moment, right? Um, and, and don't you worry, we're gonna talk about what is SRS versus NIBRS, okay? But they have phased out this. In fact, let's talk about it right now okay? So let's talk about this. The SRS system versus NIBRS, NBIRS, historically, uniform crime reporting data included both, right? But this is important. The SRS follows the hierarchy rule. What does that mean? It means, right, that basically the police, when they're inputting this data, right? So when the police were doing this, right, and they're inputting the data from their collection, and they're inputting it according to the FBI manual, they're supposed to use the hierarchy rule. And so basically, they're supposed to say, okay, in one situation, you might've had several crimes, right? But what would we see as kind of the most severe crime? And that's the one we're going to kind of put down, right? Well, murder is often going to be considered the most severe crime right? And so it kind of tilts towards, SRS kind of tilts towards kind of severe crimes or what we might call violent crimes, often getting kind of more attention in terms of input, okay? And um, this is something that, uh, you know, so let's talk about how violent crime has been measured, okay? So violent crime historically in the UCR, when you're hearing violent crime data, Um, You want to kind of, you know, it sounds kind of obvious, but you want to say how is it measured, all right? And in the UCR violent crime, you know, let me see if I can make this a little bit, I'm going to zoom in, oops, oops, I'm zooming out, y'all. Okay, here we go, I'm zooming in, oops, sorry, you know what, this is a fun game, it's called zoom in, zoom out, zoom in, zoom out, here we go. Okay, now, okay, now, here, the way that they, you know, So they talk about the hierarchy rule, right? So they measure murder, um, not as homicide in all the ranges of how homicide could be measured. They measure it as murder and non negligent manslaughter, right? So when you're getting uh, um, murder reported as violent crime in the UCR, this is how they're measuring it. That that might be very different. Um, And one of the things that we want to think about is people use the word homicide interchangeably. In fact, if you go to the... Bureau of justice statistics and you look at some reports where they're kind of summarizing UCR data, they use the term homicide, right? And that can be confusing because homicide could mean something different at the level of kind of statutes or how a state does it, right? And we might think it means this, this, and this or whatever, but they're using it sometimes as, you know, they're saying murder is murder, non-negligent manslaughter, rape, robbery, and aggravated assault. Now, one of the things that we want to keep in mind about UCR data as well is that you have both the level of, you know, how does the data get input to meet this manual guidelines, but also within the UCR manual guidelines, there's a lot of kind of issues regarding how do they measure something like rape, right? There's what is known as the legacy definition of rape. And the legacy definition of rape was basically rape of a female. And um, as, you know, there's been a lot of really important work politically to, uh, you know, show that a range of genders exist, right, and that also a range of genders can be sexually violated or raped, right, that means that there's other measurements or classifications of rape that the UCR works with beyond the legacy definition. And so sometimes when you're looking at some of the kind of debates about the data, they'll say, well, you know, the UCR data, we classified it. We also incorporated, you know, the legacy definition. Or they'll talk about kind of phasing out certain data terms, but, you know, doing it over time and not kind of automatically, right? So um, these are the kind of four major violent crimes that they tend to kind of focus on, right, as well as arson. So I want to show you, this is the data. If you were to go to, we go back,